here's, uh, here's the passage that we have today instead of last week. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You know, it's interesting because that's exactly what it said inside my Mother's Day card. <laughs> and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Large crowds following Jesus. This is not a paradigm that we see too often today. Why? Because we live in America. We live in a consumer society. And for us... When we think about making big decisions in our life, they often fall into a decision-making process that marketers have helped to shape for us over the decades. And you, you think of it, and, and this is the classic decision-making process uh, that, that, that most people kind of hold to as, as they're considering any, any sort of a product. Number one, it's the awareness of a need or a desire. Something kind of provokes us. And then number two then begins information gathering. And you do your research of the different cars that you might want to purchase or the different homes or the different colleges that you might attend. And you, you do your research. Third is then you evaluate the main alternatives that are available to you. And then from those alternatives you decide what's going to be your best choice given certain criteria. All right, so get the need, do the research, evaluate the alternatives, make the choice or make the purchase, and then finally you evaluate how your purchase went. That's the classic consumer decision-making model. I was the uh, uh, regional marketing director for Coca-Cola for the Northeast before I went in the ministry. We, we were, were trying to target different points on that decision-making model all the time. Sadly, that's what many churches now do as well, is try to engage people along the path of consumer-driven marketing. As a matter of fact, there was an article in Christianity Today a couple years back, and in it, it lamented this, this compromise uh, whereby people have become... In, in a sense, church shoppers. I'm going to quote from, from that article. Churches across the spectrum com compete to display their capacity for caring. Though each has its own way of making the pitch. And again, I'm reading from the article. The tabernacle. A spirit-filled, multicultural church pleads, come, let us love you. While the Bible Way Temple is more formal, if not downright odd. A church where no stranger need feel strangely. The only response that comes to mind is, thank thee. One church sign in South Carolina announced, where Jesus is Lord and everybody's special. Which made it sound like second prize. And one Methodist congregation tries to get it all in. A Christ-centered church where you can make new friends, form lasting friendships with people who care about you. And all of those are, are really just a, an attempt to be able to 
persuade and almost plead with people to please consider Jesus. I don't see Jesus doing that yeah. in the scriptures. Jesus is like, all right, here's the deal. I'm the Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, your Savior, and I've got some terms. And here's the conditions. Take it or leave it. But those terms are sweetness to the soul. And only foolishness or cowardice or selfishness run amok would in any way ever reject the sweet terms that I offer to you now. And here he has these great crowds, throngs coming upon him. Many, many thousands. And he begins his sermon with, Good to have you here with me today. Unless you hate your mama and papa, you hate those kids that your wife just gave birth to, you hate that wife who just gave birth to those kids, you got no way hanging with me. Interesting, right? And then it only gets better. Oh yeah, and unless you hate your own life, there's no way you can be my disciple. And if you're going to shrink back, from denying yourself and taking up the cross of persecution, then also, don't even think about calling yourself a Christian. Because you're not one. Drops the mic, walks off the stage. Wow, what do we do with that? Let me, let me uh, finish in, in what Jesus then goes on to say here. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt's good, but if it loses its saltiness, it can't be made salty again. Fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm going to take this passage in a couple sections and just to organize it, I've got a couple points to, to help our way through it. My first point is an epic invitation. As he turns to the crowd, he does offer the ability for people to come to him. But it is on Jesus' terms. And what is involved in that invitation is an epic life. But as he, as he offers it, he sounds less like the church adver advertisements or billboards that I was just reading. And he sounds more like a fellow that I've always admired, uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi. He was an Italian general. He's one of the, kind of the main fathers of the Italian nation. In the mid-19th century, he really uh, was the general that orchestrated many of the campaigns that helped to form the, the nation state of, Is of Italy. And this is what... He said, as he tried to gather troops together from little city uh, states into becoming a nation, here's his, his offer to the men that would follow him. I offer neither pay, nor lodging, nor provision. 
I offer only hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves this country in his heart and not just on his lips follow me. Wow. And it, it was that man who was able to really galvanize the critical mass to help form the nation that eventually became Italy in the, in the mid-19th century. It reminds me a bit of, uh, you probably have heard of, of Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton, uh, who around the same time in the mid-19th century was one of the guys who was, led the expeditions to the South Pole. And it was treacherous work. And supposedly he had put an ad uh, in, in the paper in London and just said, men wanted at the top. And then below it, it read, similarly, I offer neither... Whoops. Wrong one there. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. He needed 100 men, 5,000 applied with that. Throngs followed Jesus, not because he says, I offer you comfort, but because I offer you a life of significance. And I offer you a peak into the life to come that you can only gain through a life well lived according to the will of God now. When Jesus says, if you come to me, you're not going to be in this epic adventure if you do not carry your cross and follow me. Literally to bear your cross. What, what is that idea that he's saying, of, unless you take up your cross? We've encountered this a couple times already through the Gospel of, of Luke. And today the phrase, well, it's just my cross to bear, is a bit of a common sentiment and it's a bit overused and definitely watered down. As I've mentioned, there are plenty of uh, friends that I have that will use that phrase completely inappropriately. I had a rough night's sleep last night. I guess that's just my cross to bear. Crosses were used for capital punishment to kill people in a rather humiliating way. I don't think because you didn't sleep so well, that somebody's going to rip you out of your bed while you're tossing and turning, strip you naked, and nail you to a cross. That's not just punishment for not having a good night's sleep. That's just my cross to bear. It does not mean, well, I guess I just have a burden that, that there's in my life. No. Having a cross to bear means that I have, waiting for me, persecution for deciding to be countercultural and the way that I try to make a difference in this world. The Romans used crosses to dissuade revolution. That was their number one purpose. And for this crowd that would have been there, many of them would have been around the town of Sepphoris around 11 AD, and that town was only a couple kilometers from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. It was right next to Cana. It was right near Capernaum, right in the heart of where Jesus' ministry was around the Sea of Galilee. And in that time, an uh, uprising of many thousands of Jews tried to take down the stronghold garrison of Roman occupation in the Roman town of Sepphoris. That uprising was put down, and ultimately those thousands of men were either killed, but then the 2,000 that were deemed the best and the brightest were taken 
and hung on crosses up and down the roadways leading from Nazareth to Sephoris, from Sephoris to Capernaum, to Cana, to all the towns and villages where all these people in this crowd most likely lived. They knew what a cross meant. And they knew why their heroes were all hanging on a cross. Because they aspired towards revolution. And in the process of that, they became billboards for Rome. Billboards that basically were saying to everybody as they passed by, this could happen to you. You want to be the brave guy? You want to be the one who makes a difference? This will happen to you. It was designed to rob their hearts, cause their hearts to melt with cowardice and with fear, rather than to stand firm for a cause and go after it, no matter what the consequence. And they thought with such grave devastation, such excruciating pain, suffering and torture, so public, so humiliating, that it would have the intended fact. And it did. It was part of the reason that Rome was able to extend its boundaries so far without uprisings undermining the extent of the Roman Empire during those, those first centuries. And when now they're hearing from Jesus, by the way, unless you're willing to have that happen to you, you're not going to be my disciple. And what happened to the people that were actually in this crowd? Well, Matthew was hung on a cross and died. Peter, for preaching the gospel in Rome, was hung on a cross and died. Andrew, for preaching the gospel, was hung on a cross and died. Thomas, for preaching the gospel in southern India, was run through with a lance and died. Mark was drugged through the streets of Alexandria, clubbed to death for preaching the gospel. James the Lesser, same thing. John, thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil, ultimately sent to exile on the island of Patmos. Bartholomew skinned alive for preaching the gospel. So it's not like, well, I guess I'd be willing to take up my cross and follow Jesus. There's no willing here, like theoretically, if something like that ever did happen. To the crowd that's listening to Jesus, they signed up for it. And for many that we know that we're in this crowd, we know what happened to them. And that's just a small list of what it was. Well, is Jesus advocating some sort of a political revolution or social revolution or even economic revolution, military revolution? No. But a spiritual revolution has consequences, as we see from Jesus and from the aforementioned folks that I just mentioned. And he is offering you not comfort, nor any of your other considerations in a consumer mindset. You know what he's offering you? To break out of a materialistic mindset and to live for something transcendent. Something glorious that you get to have in Jesus an epic life. A battle to fight. An adventure to live. Many to rescue. That's what Jesus is offering you right now. Would you rather have that? Or would you rather just have the mundane? Leading a life of quiet desperation. Taking the path that most take. The path of least resistance. But you coming to Jesus here, and He is giving you a radical charge. And for any of us in this fellowship who decided, yes, I'm going to make Jesus Lord, we studied this passage and we considered it carefully. Are you still where you were? When you stood before many witnesses, and before that washing of spirit and word and water, and before that, and you said, Jesus is Lord. 
And there were thunderous applause because people realized, wow, that's someone who has decided to carry their cross and follow Jesus and really be a Christian. In light of this passage today, do you still feel good about standing up and saying the same thing? I hope so. And I hope that every time that we come across the words of Jesus, we're reminded not of, oh, uh, I should have maintained, I should have done that, but rather like, yes, that's right, that's why, that's why I'm following Jesus. Because I'm not going to just have some sort of life of insignificance. Not that I want to be so significant in and of myself, but that in Jesus, in addition to having grace and salvation and and certainty in Him, in addition to that, He also gives me a life worth living. Because it's a life worth dying. Dying for as well. But what about this whole idea of, all right, and, and when you come, if you don't hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life, you can't be a Christian? What, what is that? What is He saying there? Didn't we just hear Him say a couple chapters back, in, in the parable of the um, Good Samaritan, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, where's this whole hate, your mommy and daddy coming from now? Well, it, it's, it's a Hebraism that is a, a phrase in Hebrew that is used quite a bit in the Old Testament. It's actually repeated, for example, in, in Romans as well. Uh, I'll, I'll just read it to you. But when Paul is, is writing about a choice that God made in Romans 9, he writes... The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Was God unjust in making this choice? Not at all, Paul goes on to say. The language of one I hate, but one I love is the language of choice. It is not literal, it's rhetorical. It is a way to say one I choose, one I don't choose. And it, of course, is a bit inflammatory in the way that it's said, but it's, it's hyperbole. It's exaggerated language. To show that the choice is abundantly clear. And, and so to say, you know, Deb, Deb I love, but Drew I hated. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride to the conference with Deb. And, uh, that, that isn't that, you know, I hate that Drew. I can't, you know what? You wait and see what I do to that Drew. I'm just not riding with Drew. That's the only implication of that. As a matter of fact, in parallel passages, uh, for example, in, in Matthew 10, when this same uh, sermon is, is preached or a similar sermon is preached by Jesus, he says it a bit differently. If anyone comes to me and loves mother, brother, father, daughter more than me, he is not worthy of me. So there you just see if, if loves more. So instead of getting all kind of like freaked out about Jesus using the word hate, uh, know that it's not our own sensibility of the word hate today but it's just a figure of speech which connotes the idea of choice. But it's still a big choice. Because if you come to Jesus and you're going to choose your child over Jesus, you can't be his disciple. That's not qualifications for a Christian. If you come to Jesus and you choose your husband over Jesus, same deal. He has got to be our first love. Our great priority the great thrill and the great obsession of our lives. The great enthusiasm. Realizing that, my goodness, what it is that he's done for me. How exciting it is to have this privilege to now be all in for him. And when you're all in for Jesus, 
It is epic indeed. But when you're a consumer, using a consumer decision-making process to maybe invite Jesus into your life or maybe decide that I'll do a little Jesus stuff now with, with uh, some of my free time, there's nothing epic about it. Matter of fact, it's dull. It's unattractive. It's anemic. It's wimpy. It's at best maybe ruminating over a psalm every now and again, showing up for some sort of a communal Bible study now and again, but none of it having an effect on your soul, none of it having an effect on your hands and your feet, none of it being seen in grace being displayed through your great works of love as you go about changing the world for the sake of Jesus Christ. Time for us, one and all, whether you're considering Jesus right now or whether you've already made Jesus Lord, to get real, is he still Lord of my life? Or have I somehow relegated him to some consumer decision? This is not a consumer decision-making process. There's no evaluating alternatives. There's no information gathering. There's no evaluation on our part at all. There's only this unbelievable honor of being disrupted in our life by the Lord of Lords and King of Kings who had mercy on my defilement of life and gave me a new lease on life, Amen. what wouldn't I do Amen. for Jesus who called me out of my wreckage? Amen. Point two, a monumental consideration. He goes on to say, All right, maybe you want to build a tower. Let, let's look at it that way. Don't you sit down and... And this word to estimate the cost is the word to use a bunch of pebbles. It's a Greek idea. You've got all these pebbles, and you're going to use them for accounting, almost like an abacus. You're going to kind of get on your abacus, do a little bit of work there, and see if you're able to see this thing all the way through. How many here have ever been on ODU's campus in the last 14 years? If you were there in 2001, you were pretty excited. Because in 2001, Meglev came to ODU. Groundbreaking transportation technology right here in Norfolk, Virginia. How blessed are we? And they built this fantastic track. They put the ODU Monarch logo on it. They aligned it. And then I remember later in 2001 that on, on, a, on a big crane, they brought in the first Meglev car and they lowered it down, and the $16 million budget was starting to show the fruit of all that it was meant to deliver. And then came 2002, and 2003, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, 9, and then in 2010, finally it's, oh, we don't have enough money to complete this. And we don't have any more money coming in. You know what they did last year? They started ripping up what was left of the tracks on top for scrap metal just to be able to continue doing magnetic research because the whole program was that far out of funding. And they, you know what they got for the tracks? $60,000. But it was worth it because it's just a monument to foolishness. A monument to short-sightedness. And anytime that you now walk around ODU's campus, Sometimes you drive through and you go down Hampton Boulevard and you think, what, what was that overpass that just went over me? <laughs> wonder why that's there. I never see anything on that. What is that? 
Well, tucked back far away with trees growing over it is the Meglev train. And, you know, there's graffiti and there's rust and it's just nastiness. And what was once going to be so glorious is now an epic fail. A monumental embarrassment. And Jesus says, is that what you want your life to be? Because what I'm offering you is a radical life on the edge. And it's going to be amazing. And in the end, a life well lived is a monument to Jesus. But if along the way, because of cowardice, short-sightedness, selfishness, because I want to do me rather than Jesus, even though he told me this would occur, think it through, don't decide to go down this path if there's any of this me, 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 wanting to exert itself. But if we ever decide that, well then, welcome to Meglev. And that's what Jesus says is the illustration of our lives. But it's not a total failure. At least you get to serve as a very visual bad example. As a warning to other people. You become an embarrassing cautionary tale. That's not what you want your life to be. And likewise, even as we decide, I'm going to re-up for Jesus here. But when I re-up, I want to make it a monumental decision. Not, oh, I felt bad by that sermon. So go ahead, sign me in. I'm, I'm all in again, Jesus. No, no, I mean, really. Go ahead. Think it through. Think it through this year, next year, next year. What if that romantic interest pops into your life? What if that job opportunity that causes so much compromise suddenly presents itself? What if there is that illness in your child? What if there's this turn in your spouse? What if, think it all through, the more epic, the more necessary. You know, the Washington Monument was, was meant to be the tallest structure on earth when it was undertaken uh, around the, the mid-1800s, 1857. And as they began to build, it was going to be, again, this incredible obelisk, monolithic structure of stone, and began great. But in 1857, as there were struggles between North and South, and ultimately then the Civil War, the Washington Monument became known as the National Smokestack because it was only one-third of the way up towards its eventual height of 555. But there it was, only one-third of its height, so, you know, around 180 or so. And, and at that height, it was a national embarrassment. But nobody anticipated war between the states and all of the ramifications therein. You know what Jesus is saying? Even that type of stuff you need to anticipate. Even the awful prospect of brother killing brother in the United States, that tower not being completed, you need to think through even at that level of, of debacle and travesty. What could it be in your life? What is that tender spot that would really perhaps prompt you to back off of just all in, excited, going for it, loving life, living in obedient love of Jesus Christ? Whatever that is, think it through. Now, ultimately in 1875, the Washington Monument got back on track. It is a bit different. They, had, they couldn't find the same stones. But ultimately, it did rise to its, its current height of, of 555 feet, just a couple inches short of that. 
And it was the tallest structure on Earth. Well, a couple years later, maybe 40 years later, the Eiffel Tower doubled it. Uh, but in terms of a stone obelisk, it is still the largest stone obelisk on Earth. And it is a monument to perseverance. And, and even though you may stumble and fall back, nonetheless, that you never lose sight of what it is that you want to finish. And yes, you may have some amazing setbacks. You may have seasons of life where you feel like you're running as hard as you can towards Jesus, but all you're doing is being pushed backward by the prevailing wind. But nonetheless, never stop trucking. Never stop persevering in that direction because that's what we signed up for. And to know that Jesus will cause us to persevere in the very end, but never, never, never give up. And finally, an unconditional resignation. So we have an epic invitation, a monumental consideration, and an unconditional resignation. The third idea, or the, the second uh, metaphor that he uses is, two kings are in a war with one another. There's a king that's thinking about, am I going into this battle? Because I'm outnumbered. Whoa, turns out not only am I outnumbered and outgunned, but I guess there were no guns in the first century. Uh, but I'm not only outnumbered, they've got double the forces. Well, there's no choice in this. And so I'm going to send a delegation while that other king is a long way off. And I'm going to ask for terms of peace. What are those terms of peace? Well, it says, in the same way, any of you that does not give up everything you have cannot be a Christian, cannot be his disciple. Wow. None of this stuff is on billboards. None of this stuff is in the ad inviting you. I was thinking, you know, when we finally you know, move to the new building and get our billboard, we, we should just have like a sign up saying, come to Jesus. Cowards need not apply. Come to Jesus. Warning. You may die. Come to Jesus. Caution. You may have to give up every single thing you love and have. But in the end, it's the deal of a century. And it's the glory beyond anything that we can manufacture in and of ourselves through any of these things that we try to gather around ourselves. Well, anyway, so this king is not called to just go through the analysis that might create paralysis, but while the other king is a long way off, get on it. You don't want to be waiting until Jesus is, you know, kind of coming for the second round here. Because he's not coming to save, but he's coming to judge at that point. And so while the other king is a long way off, it's time for us to lay out and ask for the terms of peace. And as I said, what are those terms? Unconditional surrender. In terms of give it all up. Surrender it all over. But here's the beauty. You are surrendering it, not to some nasty, despotic king. You're surrendering it to Jesus. Yeah. Jesus, who loves you dearly. Who gives you a hundred times as much. Who makes it all so much better. And give it all up. There's nothing so thrilling as deciding that I'm going to trust with everything I have. And I love when I, I recount my brother's passage to Christ. 
And, and he had this coming his way and he decided, all right, can I really sit down and surrender? Well, I realize I got no choice. If I try to oppose Jesus, what's going to be the end? I'm going to be destroyed. He's got, well, to say double the troops is kind of a, almost a hilarious comparison there. I mean, he's got overwhelming advantages. And, and so my brother realized, all right, I got no choice. I, I, not only do I need to, but I can't wait to really surrender everything to this saving king. And one of the big things in his life he had holding over him is he had orchestrated embezzlement on Wall Street. And he knew that if he went and shared it with his director, that it could be those nylon zip-tie handcuffs that are semi-famous on Wall Street. But he went, nonetheless, and he sat down across from his director named Tom, and he began to confess to him these things that were hanging over his head. There was a long list of things. And as he was working his way up, his legs started shaking, shaking, shaking. And he, he was saying to himself as he's talking, and his leg is just kind of going for it, like he, like he put a quarter in there, that he's like... Is this because of fear? Am I, am I afraid to say this? But he's like, I, I don't actually feel fear right now. And he said, can I keep this conversation going on inside my head and still have this conversation with Tom out here? <laughs> I don't know if he said that. That's just me speculating. But, but, but then he did, he did have the realization, this is not fear. This is excitement that I actually trust Jesus with everything in my life. Me, me of all people, he said. I'm the, I'm the guy that had a $10,000 a year co cocaine and pot habit. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy that, that seduced anything and everything that I could. I'm the guy that cheated and stole my way up to this position that I have in the firm. I'm me of all people, and he would actually have this regard for me. And now he's given me the chance to actually trust in him. And he's brought me to actual faith in him. Who knew? I believe in Jesus. And with that resolve, he said, you remember those two Germans that had the embezzlement deal a few years back? I'm the one who did it. And I remember him saying, it was his, his director looked at him straight in the eye and said, you know, we knew about this. We suspected it was you, but at the time we decided that we would not prosecute. And the thing that I want to know is, what is going on in your life? Because nobody would have ever done this under normal uh, conditions. And he went on to tell him, I believe in Jesus. I really do. Like, not jive, not just lip service. I believe in Jesus. And everything's different. And I don't care what I give up. I don't care what I get or what I don't get. I just have Jesus. And it's so astounding. We're not like Jesus people in my house growing up. Not by a long shot. You even said the name Jesus. It was like, ooh, that gives me the creeps. What do you, sounds so religious. What are you doing? But there he is, Jesus, 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 right? The whole time, I mean, he's not swearing either. He really means Jesus. And, 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 his, and his director then is like, I, I can't believe you of all people. Like, this is really the case. And he went on to tell me, and by the way, that began his epic journey for, for my brother. Uh, later that week, he was able to use the conference room. 57 of the brokers there in, in southern Manhattan uh, came to the, to the uh, conference room for his initial Bible study. 
From them, 17 of them studied the Bible. Three of them made Jesus Lord and got baptized within that very year. And it only began then a, a life of adventure. A life of making a difference on this earth for Jesus. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Do you want a life of quiet desperation? Or do you want to be the man in the arena? Not just the man looking at the side making commentary. Get in the arena. Get in there with Jesus. What He offers is not only the sweetness of His intervention and His blood and His redemption for all that we've done in going astray, but... With that, He now offers you to be part of His solution for all other people. But you can't say, well, I'm going to claim all that and then only do it with your lips and not really live it out. That's part of what He's saying here. You really do have to take up your cross. You really do have to follow Jesus. You really do have to be His disciple. Let's be nothing less. Amen. Amen.